Hi listeners, welcome to another episode of Environmental Justice, Hot Takes in a Heating World. Before jumping in the topic, I want to note that this podcast reflects my own personal research and opinions, and it does not reflect the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I also want to acknowledge that I am recording this podcast on stolen land. Madison, Wisconsin occupies the ancestral home of the Ho-Chunk Nation, who call this land Dejope. The Ho-Chunk faced decades of ethnic cleansing, and they were forcibly removed from the land that the University of Wisconsin-Madison occupies today. This violent history of colonialism is what has allowed me to study on this stolen land. Today, I will be your host. My name is Abby McDowell, and I use she-her pronouns. I will be talking about the expansive topic of green gentrification in this episode. I want to explore the topic of green gentrification and ultimately argue that people living with environmental injustices often are unable to escape the injustices that they face within the current political structure because of green gentrification. But that's a lot to unpack right now, so we'll get into it more. First of all, what even is green gentrification? Well, the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability refers to green gentrification as the process of implementing an environmental planning agenda related to green spaces, which ultimately will lead to the exclusion and displacement of politically disenfranchised residents. That was also a lot, so let's unpack it a bit. First of all, um, by making a space more green, for example, by cleaning up pollution, providing more natural spaces like parks, and adding other environmental improvements, the surrounding area will gain an increase in their quality of life and also an increase in their property values. This, in turn, is going to attract new wealthier residents and will price out and displace a vulnerable group of residents. This phenomenon of green gentrification is especially true as environmental consciousness grows distinctly in urban areas. The topic of sustainable development is becoming more popular. Sustainable development was first defined in 1987 by the Brundtland Report as the idea that human societies must live and meet their needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. It places an emphasis on environmental preservation and ultimately just means that we can't outlive what our resources are providing for future generations. And this makes total sense. Who wouldn't want to live more environmentally friendly? Who wouldn't want more environmentally friendly cities, products, or more access to green space, especially in urban areas, right? The increasingly mainstream cry for Addressing the climate crisis must be acknowledged, and therefore, the environmentalist push for green urban practices has been pretty successful. Well, kind of. The push for green spaces or nature parks could be really beneficial in large cities with poor air quality and dense populations, as well as for the aesthetics, which... Um, unfortunately will add to a city's attractability and capital success. From the outside looking in, one might think that the shift of the American urban population and making conscious decisions to be more mindful of our environment is beneficial, especially with the looming climate crisis. However, I would argue that this topic is a lot more complex than that. 
In fact, I would argue that people living with environmental injustices are often trapped under the current system because of green gentrification. The process of cleaning up in the environment in a community for the community that lives there is really hard because as the community's environment is cleaned up, gentrification is invited and the previous residents are then forced out. To understand how that happens, we have to understand that American cities are still very much segregated. Um, editors from Britannica write about racial segregation as the practice of restricting people to certain circumscribed areas of residence, separate institutions or facil facilities in the basis, on the basis of race. Racial, racial segregation provides a way for the politically dominant group to maintain their socio-economic status and the attached privileges to that status. Um, for example, Detroit, Michigan. According to data from the 2010 census, Detroit is among the most segregated metropolitan areas in America. I will provide a few maps in the, um, field, in the notes below because it's a lot easier to um, look at the data, but 51.9% um, of Detroit residents live in zip codes where the vast majority of residents share the same race or ethnicity as them. However, unless full integration has occurred, all cities in America maintain a certain level of racial segregation. Racial segregation is occurring in cities across America now in 2021. This is over 50 years after policies such as the Fair Housing Act were enacted um, with the purpose to increase integration. This is due mainly to the long history of racist housing policies that were made previous to the Fair Housing Act, and also the continued legacy that they hold systemically and interpersonally. Low-income neighborhoods of color are often disproportionately exposed to environmental hazards. Because of this, segregation and green gentrification are firmly linked to environmental injustice. Rosita Taylor, among her extensive repertoire and her works on racism and the environmental movement, has written about the history of environmental justice movement. She writes, the environmental justice movement began to take shape in the early 1980s with campaigns opposing the sitting of landfills and the discovery of DDT contamination in African-American communities in Alabama. Taylor also writes how the movement really took off with the publication of a 1987 study by the United Church of Christ, which claimed that race was the most reliable predictor of residents near hazardous waste sites in the United States. So you might be wondering, what exactly does environmental injustice look like? Environmental injustice examples include many blatantly clear incidences. Just one of the most well-known and recent includes that of the Flint water crisis in Michigan. You probably already know the story, but in short, the crisis occurred when the city failed to properly treat its water systems after changing water sources, which resulted in the mass lead poisoning of hundreds of children and adults. Despite the outcry and the complaints from the community 
of mainly low-income people of color, the city failed to respond adequately. This is a clear environmental justice example, and is a result of the historical racial segregation of our nation, and it contributes to the larger discussion about racism in the United States more generally. Environmental gentrification often is spurred by the cleanup or improvement of environmental health in an area. As Flint is a recent event, the question remains if it will be impacted by green gentrification. However, in a 2018 interview I found with, with one Flint resident named Abel Delgado, he was interviewed by Eddie Conway. This revealed Delgado's opinion on this. He spoke in the interview about how Flint was already suffering from various economic and imperial policies, but the Flint water crisis really pushed people out of the city. Big corporations are coming in to invest in Flint because the proper realities are so low. And this, Delgado says, is how Flint is beginning to be gentrified. So what does green gentrification look like as the climate crisis worsens? Well, as a case study, we can look at green gentrification in East Boston. East Boston is a historically working class Latino and Italian neighborhood. In an article by the PNAS, the authors are critical of the 2017 Climate Ready East, and Boston, East Boston Plan. This plan warns that half of the land in East Boston could be flooded in the next 50 years by a major storm. And this presents green infrastructure as a resilience plan. The Boston real estate industry is thus building resilience properties one of which includes an apartment complex called Clipper Ship Wharf. And the first floors of this 478-unit complex is set 24 feet above Boston's baseline. Though a great technological innovation, the rent starts at 2500 per month. As you can imagine, this is largely displacing lower and middle class residents because this form is, of resilience infrastructure is only available to those in the elite category. As one elite residence is built, the surrounding area becomes increasingly gentrified and even the green spaces and public sport spaces near this infrastructure will be socially and culturally excluding to marginalized people. This is also an example of how segregation is perpetuated. Green gentrification is also following rules based on city zoning policies. Boston has designated certain neighborhoods for green infrastructure. Thus, they are kind of saying that those neighborhoods are worth protecting. As the city makes these zoning policies and turns to private financing tools in order to execute these adaptation measures, the interest of socially vulnerable groups of class and racial ethnic minorities become lower, lower priorities very quickly. In some, as we can see in East Boston and across the nation, as climate change increases and green infrastructure techniques are used to combat it, environmental injustice occurs continuously. Even without there being a big incident like the injustice in Flint, there are continuous small injustices happening 
and lower class people of color are displaced from their homes. So I know that this problem of green gentrification seems super big and unsolvable. So what can we do about it? Are there people that we can talk to directly facing green gentrification? Ultimately, from my research, it seems that the answer lies in community-based organizations. In a study done by Temple University, many various resistance strategies are examined. Some participate in bureaucratic channels to formally register community concerns, such as speaking at an official city planning meeting or even just getting out and voting. However, um, a lot of people have found that their participation in these kinds of meetings does not have any meaningful outcome because there are especially disproportionate power dynamics in low-income and minority communities. Additionally, this kind of work is really time-consuming, emotional, and super resource-intensive for socially vulnerable residents and activists. P.S. For those of my listeners that are also not part of these marginalized communities, we should be doing some of this labor if we can. Anti-green gentrification efforts have also extended the capacity of collective action through community-based organizations. These organizations play a really important role in building community wealth and an alternative development and training schemes, so vulnerable residents are able to continue the cost of living in their neighborhoods. Another technique in fighting green gentrification found by activists and coalitions of residents is putting direct pressure on government agencies and corporations by protesting and writing letters. This technique is successful because it puts both pressure on the government and it raises awareness in the community. Finally, some activists have finally have found that anti-gentrification policies like affordable housing schemes could complement greening strategies, which are meant ultimately to combat climate change, which is what we also want. Um, this would require stricter regulation for real estate development by public planners and officials, but it seems really promising in my opinion. If we could get um, the ultimate goal of climate change solutions partnered with helping out vulnerable populations to stay in their homes and their um, loved communities, I think that that would be really amazing. But at the end of the day, Abel Delgado from Flint, Michigan says, quote, we cannot continue to rely on this existing system that continues to enslave us. We need to be focused on community and building our power, end quote. At the end of the day, it seems that our current systems are not serving us in the way that we need them to. Um, this requires a change in the system and us to address these issues in a different way than we have. Um, thank you so much for listening to my episode about green gentrification. I know this is a really heavy topic and I really appreciate you staying with me through the whole thing. Um, for my list of sources and some supplementary images, please refer to my written notes.